You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. There has seldom been a more impotent claim on that foot forward by the present government. You know, there probably couldn't be a greater contrast between a person in power and the person that takes over after them than in 1945 when Winston Churchill, the iconic prime minister of Great Britain, is replaced by Clement Attlee. had very little to say. And that was in steep contrast to somebody who said a lot, did a lot, was well-known, was famous, would engage in long conversations and long talks, but also wrote volumes and volumes of books. No invasion on a scale beyond that. It's likely to take place until our Air Force has been definitely overpowered. In the meantime, there may be raids by parachute troops and attempted descents by airborne soldiers. We ought to be able to give these gentry a warm reception, both in the air and also if they reach the ground in any condition to continue the discussion. But for Attlee, reporters said it was very difficult to get very much out of them. You know, at one point, asked about if he would like to comment on the general election, he just said no. Now, the closest I can get is uh, here's an interview with him well after his prime ministership in 1964 when he's talking about then Prime Minister Harold Wilson. Do you think Mr. Wilson is likely to have trouble with the so-called left wing of the Labour Party, or do you think they're likely to be keep themselves in check? I don't think I have trouble. No. What advice do you give to Mr. Wilson? My advice is go right ahead on your program. From your experience, uh, Lord Athlete, is the Queen likely to give any suggestions uh, on the choice of ministers? I don't think so. I don't think so. How soon do you think, if Mr. Wilson goes to the palace about now, how soon do you think he will submit the first list of ministers to Her Majesty? I think tomorrow, probably. How big a cabinet do you think there should be? There's about 23 at the moment. Do you think that's too big? Much too big. How many should there be? 16 or 17. 
But Adelaide was an important figure in British history, especially because some of the programs in Britain, educational programs, welfare programs, the National Health Service, was brought about during Attlee's government. It's one of the surprises of politics, and it's one of those reasons why people never stop fighting elections, right, no matter how much they're down. In American politics, everyone thinks about 1948. But in British politics, there's the election of 1945, right after VE Day. So the war in Europe is won. The war in Japan is still going on. There was some talk about holding off the election for that, but uh, it was not to be. The election begins at the end of May, and it ends in July. So it's a very short election campaign. Labor organizes, says it's time to rebuild the country. But Churchill's immensely popular. This is after the war. There were opinion polls, though, that start showing that, you know, despite Churchill's popularity, Labor's the more popular party, but people aren't trusting opinion polls. Remember, this is three years before what's going to happen to the United States in 1948, where the polls got it all wrong. The Manchester Guardian says, the chances of Labor sweeping the country and obtaining a clear majority are pretty remote. When the election comes on July 26th, it's a surprise to everyone including Attlee. Labor won in a landslide. They win 47.7% of the vote. Conservatives under Churchill get 36%. Churchill is ousted from office, and mid-war, Clement Attlee becomes now prime minister and is the one who, along with Harry Truman in the United States, is prosecuting the war. I've talked about it on the podcast before, that everyone's always surprised when they hear that story, that Churchill basically wins the war and then is ousted. But there's some fundamentals that people don't understand, and that is that, in a way, the government was not changed. The Although there was a conservative prime minister sitting, Churchill was a maverick in his conservative party. That government that was in place during World War II in Britain was a coalition government. Attlee had been the deputy prime minister, and Labour was supporting Churchill's policies. Labor was, at least after, say, 1934, 1935, pro-Soviet, pro-loyalist government in Spain and against the Nazis. And so was Churchill. And so they could deal with this particular conservative, even though they didn't like all of his policies. Attlee, by the way, has some stories about working with uh, with Churchill, and you can kind of see, I don't know, a little bit of the odd couple kind of going on. If somebody asked me exactly what Winston did to win the war, I would say, talk about it. And the cabinet talked about practically nothing else. It was extremely difficult to interrupt him because not only had he no intention of stopping, but frequently he had no intention of listening. His monologues sometimes went on for very long periods indeed. What Winston did, in my view, at least said a little more positively, was to keep us all on our toes. He did very little work in cabinet. Churchill's cabinets, frankly, were not good for business, but they were great fun. He kept us on our toes partly by being Winston and partly because he was always throwing out ideas. Some of them were not very good, and some of them were downright dangerous. But they kept coming, and, and a lot of them were excellent. He gets 390 seats for the Labor Party in the House of Commons, which is 146 more than majority, huge majority. And because coming out of the war, 
They're going to enact changes. Um, and they're going to use that lead to transform the government of Britain in many ways. They're also coming off a war where a lot of people felt there was sacrifice, where a lot of people felt there was ruin, ruin in the country, and the country needed to get back on its feet. So there was broad support for uh, more action from the government and for more programs and services, including a national health service. In order to do that, they have to overcome the opposition of the House of Lords. And the House of Lords would, would block legislation. So a reform bill is passed to stop them from being able to do that. In order to get that passed, Attlee has to go to the king at the time and get the parliament prorogued for a short period of time. That's the longest period that the parliament was prorogued or put on vacation, essentially, until now, where the current prime minister, Boris Johnson, has just asked for the same. And uh, we're going to talk about that with somebody who knows, and he's Stephen Byrne of the What M Politics podcast, uh, and also a listener to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics for a very long time. I'm honored to have uh, once again on the show, really a third time appearance, Stephen Byrne from the What M Politics podcast, and also a listener of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, and... My go-to guy for everything British or Irish politics. How are you, sir? Not too bad. Top of the morning to you. It's uh, afternoon for me, but morning to you because I'm based <laughs> over here. You're based over there. Indeed. I got my little coffee out, you know. But I'm an early riser, as you know. You, you got to be. There's a lot of books to read and <laughs> not much time to sleep. Uh, you know, we wanted to – well, first of all, what's going on uh, with uh, What M Politics? How's it going? You're You're a veteran of podcasting now. Yeah, I mean, back when I appeared on your first, I was only uh, a neophyte, a newbie, um, but we've been going a good two years, eight months now, so I guess we stand up there with the ones that make it past three or four episodes. Uh, yeah, it's going great. We're um, we're still doing it. It turns out that politics has not gotten quiet, so there's still an awful lot to talk about, pretty much all across the world. We just talked about Hong Kong. Luckily, a couple of months ago, we recorded an episode about constitutions and how the British didn't have one. So I presume that's going to come up quite a bit in this conversation. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. I mean, it might have been a good thing to to write something down there, but it's an interesting cast. Just in podcasting in general, you know, from what I hear from Libsyn, which is my host and a lot of host for a lot of people, you know, is that if you're above a couple hundred downloads an episode, you're really in the top percentile. You know, there are. Tens of thousands of podcasts out there, but only a very few get in. So I put, you yeah. know, I don't mean to, it's not a chest beat, but, uh, you know, my history is, is, is in the 95. Um, but the difference between 95 and 99 is enormous. Enormous. Yeah. We're not, we're not the 1%, but we're doing okay. <laughs> yeah. We're doing okay. <laughs> happily, happily middle, upper middle class podcasting. <laughs> uh, you know, the last time we talked, Right before the 2017 general election, we were actually mm. predicting that things would probably go badly for labor. I immediately started finding out just how m many people in the audience I had from the UK who were telling me, wait a second, I'm seeing some labor signs here and, um, you know, Corbyn may not drag the vote down as much. The labor result was better. Uh, Theresa May stayed in power but had a kind of floundering 
prime ministership. There was a lot of backbiting from the what we call the backbenchers, the people in parliament who aren't associated with the government and are critical, uh, who wanted a faster Brexit. And it looks like everything's come to fruition and that Boris Johnson has become the new prime minister. Yes. It will essentially... The government that's in place now is still the same that was elected after that election that we were talking about back in 2017. But the different, it, it was a minority government that came back in. So Theresa May didn't get enough seats with the Conservative Party to get the uh, 50% plus one that you need to form a government. So she had to lean on a small political party from Northern Ireland called the Democratic Unionist Party, the DUP. Um, the name kind of spells out what side of the uh, sectarian fence they are on. They represent the Protestant community, and it's probably fair. I don't know how many Unionist listeners you have in Northern Ireland that might correct me on this one, but I think it's pretty fair to say they're the um, hardline Unionist Protestant party from Northern Ireland. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. They are, my sense of the DUP is they are as close as you get to kind of an American conservative um, in terms of just some of the issues. Yeah, even culturally, they, I'm not, like, I don't know too much. I Personally, with a name like Stephen Byrne, you should be able to tell I come from I come from a different side of the fence. I'm not um, James right. Miller or whatever the equivalent is, William Miller. They, they've even copied a lot of the cultural issues from American conservative politics. So like ever since maybe the 80s or 90s, they've really doubled down on the idea of born again Christianism and evangelicalism. So there's controversies about talking about the earth being more than 6,000 years old at the uh, Giant's Causeway, which of course is a geological feature that is millions of years old. Or um, they're very adamant that there shouldn't be any abortion or any gay marriage, which really yeah. makes them as kind of a, a standout in the politics of the of Great Britain or Ireland um, as being like, yeah, they, they really toe the line. But those aren't really the issues that are coming to fruition. Those are kind of very particular niche sectarian issues. Things that they're doubling down on is that there cannot be any change in the relationship between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And that has become a very big issue um, with negotiations with the European Union as the UK is trying to leave. Essentially, Theresa May was entirely stymied. She she wanted to sell out Northern Ireland because one of the things that is true is that people in the rest of the UK don't really care about Northern Ireland. In fact, I remember um, coming up to when when the issues of the border started to come to through it, um, come to the fore. Um, a news station in the UK called Channel Four um, interviewed people on the street with a blank map of the island of Ireland, mm-hmm. and they asked them to mark where they thought the border was between north uh, north of Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. It was drawn every which way you could. Some of them even huh. drew it down the middle, east, west. So they just they, they oh, had no notion. Safe bet. Yeah. Safe. Essentially, I would say most of them don't even realize that part of Ireland, the island of Ireland, is part of their country, essentially. So it wouldn't be a big political issue to cut off Northern Ireland, except because Theresa May messed up that general election. Well, the one thing I wanted to clarify, though, is just because we talked about in the last end, and some of my listeners may not be as familiar with the border issues, the, the impact of Brexit on Northern Ireland, both sides of Northern Ireland, the Catholic and Protestant side. You know, essentially, it's just a county border right now. You know, it's not like going through two different countries. No. And that could change. That's a, that's an explicit 
part of what's called the Good Friday Agreement, which was the agreement between Ireland and the UK and mm-hmm. the, the, the parties in Northern Ireland to stop um, the civil war that was going on up there, the Troubles. Um, mm-hmm. It was a, a like a decades-long horrible conflict of terrorism, essentially, between both sides that involved a couple of attacks on the mainland in the UK and just one or two down here in the Republic of Ireland as well. But as part of that agreement, it was agreed that essentially we would ignore the fact that there was a national border running through the island of Ireland. And when you drive through on the roads, there are no checkpoints, no borders. The only thing that happens is that you see a new county sign mm-hmm. and the the speeds, the, the, the signs for speed warnings move from kilometers in the Republic to miles in the, in the north. Apart from that, you wouldn't be able to tell that you're in a different country. You go back to that Good Friday agreement, and I know there might be some hyperbole about, hey, if we have Brexit, you're going to, you know, revive all the troubles and everything. But I think it's so important for people to go back a bit and think about, the troubles uh, in Northern Ireland. And in my lifetime, I was, you know, they were still going on. It was something you heard about strife and struggle of people where politics had reached such a point of violence and and doubling down. Um, when I hear that term, because there's so many on all sides of politics, such extremism that, uh, that you know, you think about that. Uh, it's, it, it's always been a lesson to the world, both how bad it got and how it was solved and how people who had been involved in the fighting had to, you know, same generation really had to sit down at tables and work things out and all the forces that pushed that to happen, you know, in, in the U.S., Bill Clinton and the Irish government, the... Uh, George, George Mitchell, I think he's a senator from the George U.S. George Mitchell involved. getting involved, the Americans really saying we are... We are here. Mm. Uh, a lot of people, in order for peace to happen, there had to be a lot of co-signers. And then the British government and Tony Blair, um, mm-hmm. of course, to some degree, the, the conservative government before him, um, just forcing that to happen. And so everything is very uh, fragile. And one of, and I guess to feel secure, Catholics in Northern Ireland feel like like having that back door to a country that supports you, the Republic of Ireland, is a good thing. Sure, because the conflict started essentially because Catholics in Northern Ireland were, were treated as second-class citizens. Um, comparisons are made to apartheid in South Africa, but obviously it wasn't nearly as bad as that. But mm. still, um, you couldn't get a public sector job. You mm. Essentially, your, your vote didn't count because the constituencies were gerrymandered to such an extent. Um, you were basically treated as a second-class citizen simply because of which ethnicity or religion you came from. And the part of the Good Friday Agreement that really helped to solve that was a power-sharing agreement between both sides so that they feel that they would have a stake in how the place was run. But then also, you could choose to be a citizen of the United Kingdom or Ireland if you're born in Northern Ireland. I so, see. And a large part of that was an assumed an assumption that the EU would remain there to allow the border to remain open. So it's worth noting now that no one is talking about reversing the the citizen changes. The only thing that will cause a major problem is custom checks on the on the border. So the fact is, is that Ireland will be in the EU. The UK wants to leave the, the single market, the customs union. So the space there for people to ship in things between the two trading blocks that maybe each side don't want compared to how the rules go mm-hmm. means that the EU would have to force an actual physical border there. Although it has to be said, I don't know which side it is that will actually do it. <laughs> yeah, who's going to put up the wall? Who Whose interest yeah. is it? Well, maybe this new uh, UK government under I, Boris Johnson. 
I don't think so. They they like they don't have it as I said before. They really don't care mm. about Northern okay. Ireland. Um, and also, it's it would be it would be more the EU that um will start to pressure the Irish government, the uh, the republic, the government in Dublin. Um, but it, any Irish government that would start putting energy into custom checks between what are essentially its citizens, that would be a very dangerous because they wouldn't move. want goods to go if if it's no longer regulated by the EU. The EU yes. has an interest in not having goods to go. You think they might wink, wink, nod, nod, and. Forget about it as long as it's... But then if it's in Ireland, I'm thinking of a medical device, something that actually you really shouldn't have if it's not regulated and it could easily pass over through a through a border. Well, I don't know if you've heard, but most of the Viagra in Western Europe is made in Cork, which is why we say they're very hard men. So huh. like there are, there are an awful lot of um, particular industries like that in Ireland that would essentially have divergent regulation, as you say. And But the thing is, is that it would be the EU trying to pressure the Irish government to bring up the borders because there is no EU custom agency. It has to be relied on by the domestic governments. And I can't see any Irish domestic government taking the step to actually do that to any to any strict sense. The, the essential main barrier right now between the UK and EU is over the backstop, which is what the name is. It's, it's probably worth mentioning what the backstop is because I'm yes. sure that's come up. In, we hear it a uh, lot. And we, yeah. And, yeah, it's kind of a lot of people mention it as if it's this ethereal physical thing that everyone just assumes that they know about because they don't want to actually have to be the ones to explain it. But the the best way to explain it is it's, it's an insurance policy that the Irish government wants to make sure that whatever deal is done in the future with the UK doesn't involve a, a hard border in Ireland. So before we move on to because this 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 point of the negotiations is just for a transition deal. As the UK leaves the EU, there will be a temporary deal in place for, as they get to give them time to negotiate a larger deal. Because these larger deals between the EU and other countries take decades. Mm-hmm. I think it took 25 years for a recent one that was signed with Canada and another one that's quite controversial at the moment with Brazil. And even the one with the United States has been negotiated for about 20 years and is still nowhere near getting close to finishing. So this would be in place until they could do a real deal. And the Irish just want to make sure that there's something legally binding there that a future UK government couldn't use the backstop or the border, couldn't use the border as a, as a negotiating chip. They want to say it's off the table. So if they can get them to sign up to it now, then it would essentially mean that the, the Irish border will be protected forevermore. But then the problem is, is that the UK government, because of its parliamentary numbers, isn't in a position to agree that because the DUP stops them, which is why we're at this impasse. Right, because uh, now, I mean, you're at a point, I believe, that uh, Boris Johnson just has a, a very narrow majority, maybe a one. Maybe a, yeah, one. It's Tory and DUP. You got on the other side of the bench, uh, Labour and Labour's led by Jeremy Corbyn. I want to talk about that a second. Uh, you have the, also the Scottish National Party. You have the Liberal Democrats who are completely pro-EU, the really the only party that's a clear EU. Labor's kind of dodged it a bit. Yes. Um, the labor situation's interesting. Before we move to Boris Johnson, let's look at the forces kind of aligned uh, against him there in opposition in the parliament. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. 
And Ramp Software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. You know, the last time we talked was 2017 and there was that, that surprise election and then the election results became a surprise because Jeremy Corbyn, who was unpopular among his parliamentary people for being too radical, so a lot of members of the Labour Party are all on record saying he should not be the leader, he should not be the leader. Then they have this great election and they get this kind of like, I would describe it as a Bernie Sanders-like turnout. Well... I would like to point out that they claimed victory by losing. They didn't get a majority. They simply didn't do as badly as everyone expected them to. Oh, that's true. So, You're absolutely yeah. right. They did not get a majority. You know, this happens in politics. You know, they were so expected to mm. to lose that they... Uh, they beat expectations to a large beat degree. Beat expectations. And then he remained leader because there was some thought that, oh, this isn't going to last. But how can you replace him after an election result like that? Sure. And so you have him. But on the other hand, in the UK, is it's my view that, that Corbyn, maybe just in an opinion poll, is not broadly popular, but he's popular among a certain group yeah. that keeps him in power. I don't know that Boris Johnson is extremely popular either, but each one is kind of looking at the other and they got a boogeyman in their sights. They're quite popular amongst their own base, mm-hmm. which would you probably like hard base to make up about 20% of the country on each side. So there's still that 60% in the middle that probably wouldn't be too keen about either. Jeremy Corbyn is a very ideological politician. He's been a hardline, well, essentially he, he wouldn't be afraid of calling himself a Marxist um, through the decades. I think during the Tony Blair government, when he was a backbench MP, he voted against the government more often than actual opposition MPs. Um, but most of the time he would take stands on foreign policy issues. So one of the foreign policy issues he's always taken a stand against has been the European Union. He's, he, he openly campaigned against remaining in the European Union when they had the last referendum in the 70s. It's probably safe and fair to say that he's not that keen about even remaining in the European Union, but he can't say that because his party and his followers are incredibly keen about remaining in the European Union. So that has led to them kind of dithering about where what policy specifically to take. They've never... The, the Labour Party have never put down a hard policy as to what alternative they would do if they were in Theresa May's position, or at least that they have. They're just as vague and airy-fairy as what hers had been before and not actually practical in the sense that it would work. That puts them, in, as you say, in opposition the, to what the Lib Dems would be, who would like their hardline 100%. We want to reverse this referendum and make sure the, Europe, the UK stays in the European Union. So Jeremy Corbyn is... He's he's starting to take this this opportunity at the moment with the current political crisis. He says he will do anything he can to stop a hard deal exit. So uh, a hard exit, because we haven't mentioned it before, Mm. is what is on the 31st of October, which is the current um, leave date in law, is the the UK would leave the European Union with no transition deal. So it means that um, I think it's Halloween, Tuesday, I believe, after midnight on Tuesday, all of a sudden, you would not have all these interchangeable regulations which cover everything from, as you say, um, medicinal products to airlines to food exchanges or like live animal ch- changes. Car insurance even is going to be a big thing. So 
it would just you would have two sets of norm two one a previous set of normal that all of a sudden wouldn't be the normal anymore um it would essentially if you suddenly had to if you drove from texas to one of the neighboring states and all of a sudden had to change everything about the regulations between the two um and there was no time to build up um to, mm. to allow them to, to to get into harmony together so that's what jeremy corbyn is explicitly saying he is willing to stop but i i suspect that what he's been trying to do through his political maneuvering since that election has been trying to allow the conservatives to take the uk out of the eu so he can take over after them because it won't it won't go well no matter what um whoever leads the government into the next election will lose so he would hope to get re-elected and be able to pursue his own socialist agenda or yeah socialist agenda left-wing agenda mm-hmm outside the EU, which he believes will be easier because there are there are quite a lot of left-wing detractors of the EU, him being one. That's a, It's interesting. Yeah, a lot of people think in, in America, we think of the, the European Union, anything European, really, we think of as leftist. <laughs> but really, I think that, uh, yeah, Corbyn seems to want to perhaps take the country out of the EU in order to create a, a leftist paradise rather than, uh, you know, and avoid some of the capitalist. Its primary function is as a free trading block. And mm-hmm. part of that is that you have to allow capital to move freely between them. Um, I guess the, the left wing part of that is that you have to allow people to move between it as well. So it means that you being part of the EU means that you're open to immigration. But on, and then the European courts have usually taken quite um, liberal stances and progressive stances on social issues whenever people have taken cases from the domestic courts up to the EU. They usually do come down on the side of, of, of progress and change in, th- in those senses. So you could kind of call it wishy-washy liberal in that sense. But then on the economic sense, it absolutely is not. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all about trade and integration and making sure companies are able to work easily between the two between two different member states what's your sense of what would happen if there was a hard brexit probably half as much chaos as the people say there will be okay um so the the track the the people who want to remain are saying that it would be mad max style apocalypse Mm. apocalypse um the the other people are saying, oh no, it's fine. We'll we'll automatically switch to um, WTO trading regulations or some nitty picky like that. I don't think either of them are correct. It'll probably just be chaos for a couple of weeks as things start to stabilize. I also yeah. suspect that no government, as I said before, either. Um, so for uh, the UK does a lot of trade with France through the uh, the Channel Tunnel area and around um, around Dover. So. There probably will be big clog ups and tailbacks there as the infrastructure tries to figure out how to do with this new system. And then, but I think in Ireland, we'll ignore it for as long as we can. Yeah, and I, I think because you, you don't have the the actual uh, the actual like physical borders, but yeah, I'm thinking uh, you have a product and somebody's got money, and at a certain point. Maybe there's going to be some kind of putting off of the paperwork, like money, double loan, like I loan you. Okay, I can't get it processed right now, but I'll I'll, I'll loan you the goods if you'll loan me the money. I mean, I you know it, that, that's what I see. Uh, I do think certain areas, like a, you know where things are heavily regulated and just cannot be allowed, like a drug. Um, yeah, you're going to have some confusion because you just simply can't sell the product anymore if you don't have a regulation that allows you to do it, and that's going to take some time to stitch up. But for well, there seems, would be yeah, there there will be there will be very domestic, um, very tangible things like live animal transfers would mm-hmm. and and like especially like very fresh animal produce is quite heavily regulated in the European Union. Mm-hmm. So I would I wouldn't be surprised if they were to get very strict about those kind of things on the French side of the border and um, because essentially then the eu uh, the uk although the day before it had been operating as a member 
all of a sudden now you could be trying to import sick cows to the to what the European Union considers like their their bastion of safe agriculture. So bits like that could get a bit tricky as well. Um, but I don't think an airplane is going to come from Poland and not be allowed to land in London the day after, which is what some people would have you believe. So the man that's betting that all of that will not be chaos is Boris Johnson, the current prime minister, former mayor of London. How do you describe him? <laughs> um Churchill and Donald Trump's love child, essentially. <laughs> he certainly he's, uh, wants to be going on. A, he seems to be taking the motif of a of a Churchill. It's like, look at how you know quickly I'm acting on everything. And mm, well, he he has written a biography of Churchill, which is actually a pretty good read if it is oh. just kind of a, a repeat of of lots of other bits that he's read before. But still, as as a book itself, it's quite good. Um, he's been around for quite a long time over this side. Um, if you remember, the Olympics were in London. I believe it was in 2012. He was front and center mm. for all that, including getting stuck on a zip line as he was waving to Union Jack flags. <laughs> um, but his whole shtick is that he's he makes himself out to be a bit of a b- buffoon character, very amenable, very dithering. Like the best way to impersonate how he speaks is and he hasn't changed that way. Um, but that has also been pointed out to be very calculated. He knows exactly what he's yeah. doing. He's created this yeah. persona. And it is also worth mentioning that he started off as a journalist mm-hmm. and he started off as a journalist in Brussels as a correspondent for uh, for an anti-EU paper. And a lot of the a lot of the, the stories in the United Kingdom that have turned the public against the EU were essentially made up by Boris Johnson. Things like um, the European Union wanted to make condom sizes all one size or the EU want all bananas to be straight so they can fit in boxes better, which essentially were entire fabrications. They, they, it wasn't at all true. Um, he actually he got fired from a couple of jobs, um, journalistic jobs, for impropriety, um, either of his own personal um, sexual stance in terms of he's a very he's gone through a couple of marriages um uh, yeah he's 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 quite a liberal person in his own domestic um situation and indeed when he was the mayor of london he was hailed as being quite a progressive liberal person as well but he saw an opportunity when it came to the european um exit the, the brexit referendum mm-hmm. and in fact he wrote two different articles one for remaining in the european union and one against and decided to go with against and it's hard to actually ascribe these motivations to him but it's like it seems to be the most obvious thing is that he saw an opportunity the more personal opportunity for him to go with the exit campaign so he hoped that they would lose but even by losing david cameron the previous prime minister would be incredibly damaged so he would be able to use that as the opportunity to take over i don't think he expected the european union or the, the the uk to actually be leaving the european union so since then, he tried to mount a leadership campaign when David Cameron resigned, but he was entirely backfooted, and it was it was done really badly. He ended up getting stabbed in the in the well, I was going to say stabbed in the back, but essentially stabbed in the front by one of his good political allies, and he ended up not even running for that. And that's when Theresa May became in charge. What but, do you think happened there? Was that that um um and who was that? Are you talking about uh, Rus um, uh, Michael Gove? Michael Gove, okay. What do you think happened there? They just weren't ready to put a Brexiteer in the prime ministership, or was it all about Johnson and rivalries there? It was all about Johnson, essentially. I don't. Th- um, there probably was still like the the Cameronian George Osborne, or who was the um, the Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time. They still had a lot of power, so Theresa May was seen as like a middle ground choice. She had campaigned for um, Remain, but not that not that enthusiastically. 
and when Boris Johnson actually came to have to try and gather his campaign together, it was apparently a shambles. So he hadn't got anything prepared where like people should like essentially it was put to him that he should have had all this in the in the bag waiting to go and the fact that he didn't made him look a little bit incompetent so michael gove simultaneously saw that as a bad thing and him not being good enough to be prime minister but then also he's seen a chance for himself to stand so he he put himself Ah. forward (laughs) Um, and it's worth noting that michael gove again put himself forward in the campaign against johnson but it wasn't really boris johnson actually did the opposite this time he didn't do any media interviews for about one month in the build-up to the election um, the internal conservatives, um, they actually, if you're a member of the Conservative Party, it's kind of like a primary to choose who gets to be the leader of your party. It's entirely internal. You have to be a member of the party. But the difference between the US primary system and the UK is that I'd say only about 200,000 people out of the 67 million residents of the UK are members of the Tory party. So um, a lot of the charges at the moment is that Boris Johnson is an unelected prime minister, which is essentially true. Right. And uh, I mean, the government, the government that he leads has a mandate, you know, from 2017, at least in combo with the DUP. But mm. um, uh, yeah, he he is unelected. Um, yeah, I, I find it interesting. You almost it almost su- is surprising now to think about uh, the recent history where Theresa May really did seem like a kind of figure with some um, with some reputation there. But that really whittled away. Uh, pretty quickly. She turned out to be a terrible politician. Um, she wasn't really tested before that, I guess, because she hadn't put herself forward as the leader of any major campaign. People just assumed that she had been going slow, slow and steady. She was um, she was the Home Secretary, which I guess is the equivalent of um, the Department of Homeland Security in the US. She was mm-hmm. in charge of that for a good long time. I think she held the record for um, a minister being in charge of the single department for that long and people assumed that she was doing a good job but then when it came to her actually campaigning in that general election she was just simply awful and then she had to make so many flip-flops and and bad decisions during the brexit um, negotiations she just turned she really came up as just not being a very capable politician i wouldn't be surprised if in the future um, surveys of prime ministers the bottom two are david cameron and Theresa may and i'm not sure which one would, would actually make it to the bottom yeah, I mean, Cameron looks really bad in, in retrospect. I mean, everybody at that time does. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I mean, where where with Johnson, it's interesting because I always watched the um, British Parliament on C-SPAN. They have it um, Sunday nights. and So we get it a few days late, but we get to see the question time. It, it, I always noticed how you had these guys on the Tory side with the big, thick ties mm. and, you know, stuffy jackets that didn't even seem fashionable anymore in Britain. And it seems like Johnson's innovation is to say, well, I, 
from that. I have that style. So all I'm going to do is mess up my hair a little, talk a little funny, and then, you know, that will remove that stuffiness that yes. would otherwise be a political liability. He got away with that to a certain point. Um, he used to be a lot more popular than he is now because mm. he lost he lost a lot of the popularity when he when he campaigned for leave. But there was an anecdote that went around during this leadership election about him. Um, one fellow who had been on a couple of stages with him noticed that the first time he showed up late, and then before he was about to go out, he he, he ruffled his hair, and the guy just assumed that he was. Um, he was he was just ruffling his hair for the for the sake of it because he was nervous about being late and then he went out and made a joke about being late and made a couple of other jokes at his own expense but then the same fellow went to an event 3 months later with Boris Johnson and the exact same thing happened he was five minutes late. He ruffled his hair. He went out and he made the same jokes. So it became pretty obvious that this guy, that there's nothing, it's entirely contrived. Boris Johnson knows what kind of an image he's putting of himself forward. Um, I wonder, it, I don't know how much that really adds to his credibility now. It really, uh, he, he is doubled down as to being the, the Brexit prime minister. No zealot like a convert, you know. It is worth pointing out, though, he did vote for, so Theresa May put her deal to the, for the parliament um, three times. He voted for it the last time. And it is also worth pointing out that even though he's he's done the, the proroguing of parliament now to try and stop attempts to stop him from being able to take it out, he still insists what he wants is a deal with the European Union. He he still insists that his his primary aim is to make sure they don't have a hard exit, that they get a deal that's fair. The only thing is, is that he can't accept the backstop. Yeah, so let's talk about what's going on with that and the proroguing. Uh, so sure, I mean, everybody says they want a deal, but then there's a, you know, you you could live endlessly in political life saying mm -hmm. that you want a negotiation that you know full well your trading partner or your negotiating partner will never agree to. You know, I we could we could endlessly say like, hey, I want to deal with the the European Union, but it doesn't seem like the European Union they seem to have given the deal that they are going to give? Yeah, I guess they're betting that the European Union are not as stubborn as they're claiming to be and that eventually the Irish government in particular will decide that a bad deal is better than a no deal. That's that's essentially what they're betting on. Okay, I got you. I got you. So what's a what, what's the need for the proroguing then if the, if he's still trying to get a deal? Because the proroguing to me at least seemed like it was a play to just go ahead and get a hard exit. So a large part of Theresa May's problem when she was negotiating with the EU is that the EU knew that she was going to be stymied in whatever she brought back, both in terms of it of it not being a hard enough exit and also in terms of it not being a soft enough exit. So Boris Johnson's calculation is is that if he can't actually threaten a no deal, he is hindered in his negotiations. And simultaneously, when he's trying to do that, you have his opposition MPs saying, we will stop you doing a no deal. So he wants to be able to take that Trump card out of their hands and and put it into his own. And they, the day before um, he announced the proroguing, the opposition parties had pretty magically actually come together and agreed that they would do anything they could to stop a, a, a hard exit, a no deal exit, and that involved manipulating Parliament to uh, introduce a new law to to continue the um, to to extend the extension again past October thirty first. It's worth noting as well that October thirty first is the second extension. The EU, the, the UK, were supposed to leave the European Union back in March, but that has been extended twice. Um, Boris Johnson is saying it will not be extended again, and he believes that he needs to be able to to 
to threaten a hard exit because he believes the EU are as afraid of that as he should be. Got it. Yeah, I think. Oh, so, so now I understand what happened. So in order to get that done, he can't have parliament open. He needed to prorogue parliament. I looked this up. You know, there have been proroguings of parliament. There have been prime ministers. It looks like the longest period you had in the past was uh, Clement Attlee, who... He wanted to reduce the power of the House of Lords. So That's he, it, right. He, he, used, he used the power of proroguing to, to diminish the second chamber, the House of Lords. And it's actually thanks to him now that that isn't really an issue. The House of Lords is just a ceremonial chamber. Um, the, the, the most that they can do is slow things down by a couple of days or a couple of weeks, which normally doesn't mean anything. But when we're talking about hours being essential in terms of legislation, it might become important around the end of October. Um, I guess your history fans will um, like to hear that proroguing was used by Charles I. Um, to suspend Parliament for 10 years. But of course, that didn't go so well for him because uh, he lost his head and Cromwell came <laughs> yeah, to power. Right. right. Yeah. No, no, yeah. Charles the Charles I, not the, the politician. Yeah. I mean, he, that this is what the whole, it seems to me, the fundamental issue of uh, British democracy is rooted in that struggle, even though that the Cromwell government didn't last long and had its own problems. Mm. Uh, but but uh, that, you know, your your system is set up between Charles and his his son and the the the, the kings uh, the steward kings after that and the protections that you, you you have are you know kind of based on that so doing something that charles the first did you know yeah of course that the first reaction is whoa it's something <laughs> that in america it cannot happen i mean um it can't happen in ireland either it can't yeah i mean you can never visit the president there's nobody that can ever other than the american people itself i suppose in conventions that would mm. be the only body that could ever stop Congress from operating. It operates by its own rules, just like yours. There's protections where, you know, the president wants to come. it got to be invited. Um, and there's been snips and quarrels over that. The president actually can do the opposite, can bring Congress into session. So the, the founders of America saw that the president had a role in um Perhaps, you know, bringing a little energy to the body, the reverse, mm. like, hey, you stop not doing stuff, get together and do something, but <laughs> cannot do the opposite, because that was seen as such a bad thing, probably going back to Stuart Kings, which Americans, the the uh, really distant ancestors, perhaps, of your DUP guys, um, <laughs> you know, in the, in the Scots-Irish uh, coming from the Ulster plantation, I mean, just a, a good, solid group anyway. And also German-American immigrants who also didn't were distrustful of governments like that, didn't want a president being able to dissolve Congress. You know, there are some things where the president has certain powers in a recess of Congress. And even there, they've a lot of that's been eliminated by by actions of Congress, like just. It is worth pointing out for Boris's um, defense. It isn't a, a proroguing is not a, a dissolution of Parliament. It's just um, essentially a forced holiday. Of the same parliament, so he hasn't he hasn't triggered a general election, and the same MPs are going to come back. Yes, I do understand that part. Right, it's not like a, a Charles first, yeah, uh, proroguing. Um, so uh, we could talk about all of that. So then, it, then the decision he had to ask the Queen for that, and I think in America there was some suspense <laughs> over is is he gonna is the Queen gonna say yes? But that didn't take long at all. The Queen is not allowed to say no. Essentially, um, the British Constitution, the biggest problem with the British Constitution is that you can't pick up a copy of it. It doesn't exist. Um, they have what is a political convention constitution as opposed to a proper legal constitution that's written down like republics in Ireland or the, or the United States. So 
it's gotten to the point now through convention in many decades that the, the monarchs of the United Kingdom, in order to keep their position and power, are entirely happy to to allow it to be a democracy. So the law as it stands, I believe, is that the Queen only has one minister or advisor, and that is the prime minister. And the convention is is that she will always do what he or she asks her to do. So when Boris Johnson asked for a proroguing, the Queen would have caused a massive constitutional crisis if she had said no, or even if she said, let me think about it. It just it just can't happen. And I mean, one of the problems is, is that with TV shows like The Queen or or I think the Helen Mirren movies, it's kind of made out that the Queen, this this Queen in particular, because she's been around for so long and has, has had meetings with so many different iconic prime ministers, is more powerful than she actually is. But um, essentially, the Queen has zero political function in, in UK politics now. So it would have been a massive thing if the queen had decided to make any other decision than what yeah what you, Boris Johnson that's had, my had sense her. you have this huge historical weight that's going to say you can't do it there's also the fact that look Brexit like it or not had a referendum behind it there's all kind of questions about how that voting went and what people were told would they would they still do it today and all that but um it had a there is some popular referendum so she would be running up against that and the mm. people that voted for it would be very angry and no queen wants that. Yeah, I get the sense that that's for something like, hey, I have legislation to end the democracy and make me dictator. Will you <laughs> approve that, queen? Okay, there's a situation where you might need to step in. But outside of that, um, she's tolerated even things like, I guess, the devolution of the government of Scotland. And so even things like that haven't... Um, haven't reached that level, so why use it? Yeah, and it's only a it's only a short vacation, I guess, is the way it's seen. Um, what's the sense of within the Conservative Party? There are people who are still remainers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, Philip Hammond, um, is, is is if he if he had more personality, you could probably call him the most important um, Conservative remainer. But he doesn't. Um, so he's probably the formerly most important conservative remainer. Him and at least probably 10 others would vote against a hard deal exit if they could. Um, but the problem is, is that Boris Johnson has kind of pulled the rug from under them. So the mechanisms available to the opponents of a no deal exit essentially is to try and have a vote of no confidence in the Boris Johnson government. And that's a different thing. So whereas before those conservative Tory MPs who would vote against the government on something to stop them from from having a no deal, they would. But when it comes to actually joining Labour and voting against a conservative government, most people don't believe that they would make that psychological jump. That's That would be yeah. too big. That would be big. They're constituents. They could be denominated, right? I mean, they go yeah. through a, a local process to make them a, a member of parliament. Sure. It could be challenged. Um, yeah. And then, then they're siding with Corbyn. Um, what do you think, like, when, when might there be a general election, if there will be? Because you have a – 2017 was the last one. You don't need to have one technically. Um, well, what's your sense no. about that? Not only you don't need to have one, but the UK Parliament has a fixed term Parliament Act. Um, it was a law that was brought in during the coalition between the Tories and the Lib Dems that fixes Parliament for an extent for a point of five years. That was supposed to take away the arbitrary power of the Prime Minister from being able to call general elections at their whim for political reasons, political advantage. Um, but as we've seen in 2017, which I think that was a parliament that had lasted about two and a half years, it's very easy to ignore that um, because no opposition party would stop 
an opportunity for an election because that would mean that they're trying to propose that they don't think that they should be in in power. Uh, So essentially it is still up to Boris when he wants to pull the plug on it. Uh, I suspect that he he has been in election mode since he took over. He has brought in a special advisor called Dominic Cummings. Um, He actually ran the Leave campaign for Boris Johnson and and his allies back in the referendum. And uh, he's quite a charismatic um, intellectual figure. There was a there was a HBO movie made about him starring Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, Benedict Cumberbatch actually went bald to play the role in everything, so you could tell he was excited to do it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to remain to remember the name of the movie, but it is actually quite a good piece of drama, and I would I'd recommend your listeners to watch it if they want to get a feel for sure. For I'll the, try for to the, find it and put yeah. it in. Yeah. Um, so this guy Dominic Cummings has been. He's 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 kind of been putting ideas forward that ha- well at least we assume they're coming from him because he's once the special advisor goes into office you're not going to hear anything from them they're kind of a uh, uh, they, you don't even see him walking behind bars he's been put into an office and is just sitting there hacking away at whatever policies he wants to make they're on an election footing and the assumption is is that whenever Boris gets a, a, an exit from the EU be it with a deal or not then there'll be in a general election. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's one in November, or at least he, he declares that there will be one very soon in the new year in 2020. Yeah, so that'll be interesting to watch, and we'll see if uh, if uh, he can pull it off, maybe with his kind of uh, his own brand there, um, versus um, whether, you know, there could you could end up with some kind of hung parliament. You might have Labour, Scottish National, Lib Dem. If Lib Dem's... You know, the lib- liberal Democrats have, in the past at least, been able to compete with the Tories in places where Labour cannot. Yeah, and that's that's a thing that's actually going on now. So mm-hmm. part of why Boris was so easily chosen as the leader of the Conservative Party is that he's the only leader that looked like he could beat um, another challenger to the Conservative Party, which is called the Brexit Party. So your listeners may be aware of a very charismatic politician who's a bit of a bit of a, um, a bit of a scoundrel as well. His name is Nigel Farage. Um, he has been campaigning for the European for the UK to leave the European Union for decades essentially and he has set up a new party called the Brexit party who ran in the European elections back in May and won the majority of the seats there and um, but essentially they're only token seats because everyone assumes that these fellas are going to be recalled whenever the UK leave um, the European Union anyway and um, but he is an all, a big threat to the Tory party in a lot of constituencies um, you they would be the 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 leave constituencies the anti-EU constituencies but then equally as you say the Lib Dems are challenging the Tories in constituencies that would be more middle class remain where they may not be inclined to want to support Jeremy Corbyn but would be inclined to support the Lib Dems. And it's worth noting as well that the Lib Dems have had a leadership contest at the same time when Boris Johnson was chosen. And they've put in place quite a charismatic young woman called Jo Swinson from Scotland, who has put herself forward very strongly. And I wouldn't, she's even claiming that she should be considered a third candidate for prime minister, which is a bit of a stretch, but it shows what kind of ambition she has. Well, if that's a question I have, is let's say there's an election and you have um, the Labour Liberal Democrats, and it would have to come from Liberal Democrats showing some more momentum than they have, uh, being the only EU party. Uh, and then the Scottish National Party, if they do well enough and maybe take Labour and Tory seats up there, and Labour does well enough with Corbyn um, again, and you have a coalition, do they necessarily have to go with the with the highest seat coalition party, could they could they make Joe Swenson prime minister? They don't have to in terms of any legal requirement, but the political implications of Labour 
not supporting their own leader to be prime minister are just impossible. You would essentially, the, the Labour Party would be saying that they don't believe their leader is good enough to be prime minister. So it's an impossibility, essentially. Well, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, oh, what about if it's an, yeah, I, I, get, I get what you mean. It would hurt them in the election if they said it during the election. Um, but even it, after, even after, mm-hmm. whoever was the leader of the of the Labour would have to resign as part of that. And then plus you you would like the, the whoever whatever leader they choose to replace that Jeremy Corbyn would have to declare himself the second best person to be prime minister in the UK because he would be he would be supporting the the Dem prime minister while also simultaneously supposed like the Labour it it, it the UK is set up as a two party system and that 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 formulation where you would have to have one of the two it would be like it would be like um Donald Trump stepping down and saying no he thought that the libertarian candidate would be better for him or 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 whoever whoever takes the democratic declaring whatever third party candidate would be better for them it just it simply it it, it wouldn't calculate it wouldn't make sense yeah so that's the election that Johnson wants is him versus Corbyn yes absolutely and uh um now, uh, a reminder that I'm talking to Stephen Byrne, who is one of the hosts of What Am Politics, and they take a topic on each of their shows, and they say kind of, what am, you know, elections, what am Donald Trump, what am constitutions, and things like that. And and he is based out of Ireland. We've been talking about the UK, and, and I, I, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about Irish politics a sure. bit, and, and just even some of the structure of it. Recently, you had some constitutional changes. Yeah, um, unlike the United Kingdom, we we were smart enough to write down our constitution. But unfortunately, we wrote it down back in the 1930s when we were a very different country. Um, essentially, the constitution that was written by the by the Taoiseach at the time, our equivalent to the Prime Minister, um, Eamon de Valera, was approved by the, the Catholic bishops of Ireland. So you can imagine what kind of restrictions that had in terms of personal freedoms and, and liberal freedoms that... that have changed because Ireland is not at all the country it was even 20 years ago, let alone um, 100 years ago. So we have had to slowly but surely chip away at the constitution through referendums, which is the only way to change it. Um, I'd say the biggest one was one on abortion. Um, so in the 80s, in the original constitution that we had um, written by Eamon de Valera, there wasn't any mention of abortion, but it was a very strict law um, stopping abortion. But then when um, some movement was made towards liberalization, the Irish people freaked out and agreed a, a referendum to put um, put in the constitution that the baby, the, the unborn child's life was paramount and we couldn't do anything to adjust that. So given that, I mean, it's still one of the most prominent issues in the United States. I'm sure the listeners know all the different ins and outs. Um, I will personally say that I am for the woman's right to choose. And I think that in a lot of cases, when you're making a decision for an abortion, it's a medical issue. So that is when the Irish constitution ran into a lot of trouble. There were many instances when uh, Irish medical practitioners could not perform abortions on women that were physically dying and who had to die rather than actually have a medical procedure taken out on them. So we had to make a couple of changes on the constitution to try and adjust that, but they still weren't working because it was just this hardline thing. So the the, the, the centre-right government that we've had since um, 2011, Fine Gael, they actually, I'd say, took the brave step to say, okay, we're going to 
campaign on this very specific thing that we've worked on for three years via Citizens Assembly, which was um, a random allotment of voters mixed in with experts that would vote on a particular policy choice, which would be they'd allow abortions up to 12 weeks in consultation with your general practitioner. Um, and then after that, it would be a case by case basis as to how if, if there was if there was a need for an abortion for medical reasons that would be decided by different people. Um and then that was also debated in uh, parliamentary committees for another year. And then by the time it went to a referendum, you had this very specific choice between what we have or a change that we know what it will be. So the reason that I'm pointing these bits out is that it, it sounds very different from a referendum held across the water in 2016, where you had two very vague choices about in or out of the European um, Union. So the Irish people actually, I, I, like even the night before, I was very worried that um, conservative um, powers were much stronger in Ireland and that it would lose. But it turned out it didn't. Um, the, it was They voted for liberalisation of abortion by two to one. And since then, or a year before that, or two years before that, we also had, we were the only country so far to have a national referendum on equal marriage. So people of same sexes are allowed to get married now. And la uh, this year, we also had almost a nonchalant referendum on the idea of abortion, uh, sorry, of divorce. So before we also had divorce in our constitution because Catholics aren't fans of divorce. So they made sure that was in the constitution. And obviously society has changed an awful lot more where that's not a practical thing. So we have removed divorce from the constitution and now it's up to the national parliament to set um, regulations. And we still have restrictions on divorce so that you have to be separated for two years before you can apply for a divorce. But that can be changed at any point by any government in the future. So essentially the big changes in Irish um, politics have been we've been changing our constitution bit by bit to reflect the changes in Irish society and I think the last big one that a lot of people want to change there is a mention to the trinity of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit which is a very Catholic thing mentioned in the preamble but I think people don't care enough about that they want to change it um, the one that they want to change at the moment is that there's a reference to the woman's places in the home which is in the constitution um, and people just think that that is but it's only a sentiment. It's never actually been brought into political practice because, I mean, if you were if you were a savvy constitutional lawyer, you could take every previous Irish government to task by saying, OK, how much are you paying women, Irish women to stay in the home then? Because obviously the the reality is, is that um, families have to have both both parents working. Nobody can afford to. Well, very few families can afford to have one parent at home. So. Yeah, you could very easily turn that around. So they would rather just take it out so that it isn't an issue at all. And have the constitutional changes changed the political situation and the parties there? Um, I would say no, actually, that they haven't really impacted them at all. Um, people assumed that there would be like a hardline conservative Catholic party and religious party that would come up, similar to the hardest parts of the of the Republican Party or perhaps um, what the DUP is like, but in a Catholic sense. And that they had no such party has been able to get any kind of headway. The only opponents to these things essentially have been headbangers, um, um, kind of fringe groups who don't really put forward very tenable alternatives to them and nobody has been had any success in any kind of elections be they local or national or even presidential well Stephen, anything that that we didn't get to that you really um wanted to talk about yeah well i would just say there's something about irish politics at the moment that's kind of interesting we're kind of one of the most boring 
um, political situations in the world, which I guess kind of like I, I don't spend that much time even thinking about Irish politics. Most of the time I spend my time reading about US or, or UK or European politics. And sometimes I kind of shrug and go, oh, that's terrible. I should be concentrating more on my own country. But then I also go, uh, well, no, because part of that would be drama and conflict. And I am able to live a relatively politically comfortable life. And whereas, of course, there are many, many issues such, such as a housing crisis and um, other such kind of things that are still that, that still need to be fixed very, very quickly. In general, we are quite a boring political situation. I mean, it is even that at the moment, the Irish government is a minority government supported by the largest opposition party, which is quite confusing. So you have laws being passed with the support of the opposition party who simultaneously tell everybody that that's the worst law that could be put in and they would do a better job and people kind of just go <laughs> along with it. So you have this weird co cognitive dissonance in Irish politics, but Irish people are very good at cognitive dissonance. So we should be grand for a while. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. It reminds me of something that I plan to put on the, the beginning of this episode about the 1945 political situation in the UK where you had Churchill and Clement Attlee both in government together, mm. the Labour and the Conservative that they were willing to at least deal with because he was anti-Germany at the time and so was Labour. Um, and they got along together during the war and then had the election afterwards. So it's kind of like we're, we're together, we're together, everything's great, now we're fighting, now we hate you. Yeah, well, I guess the thing that has been holding this minority government together has been Brexit, because while I say I don't concentrate much on domestic politics, of course, Brexit mm -hmm. will impact Ireland just as much as it will impact the UK. So um, they they are using Brexit as an excuse to hold this government together. And the longer the Brexit situation continues to remain um, in a state of turmoil, this Irish government situation is going to continue to basically hop on. Well, great. Great to hear from you, Stephen Byrne from the What M Politics podcast. Thanks for coming on, everybody. Um, listen to listen to Stephen's show. Please sign up if you want to hear more about this these kind of issues. This is what he's going to talk about on What M Politics. So give it a listen. Stephen, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Bruce. Good to talk to you. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.